Welcome to the show. My name is Tannen. Hey, I'm Eric. I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Abraham. Do you remember me? Probably not. <laughs> so, Michael, what is your topic? Well, it's something we can discuss. Disappointing Area 51 raid. Well, that's, that's one subject of conversation. <laughs> I guess that's a hot topic this week. I don't think any aliens were found, funnily enough. That's a shame. It really was a shame that we didn't even really get into the base at all. It's, it's been said. I don't know if any of you know Juan Posadas, who was a revolutionary Trotskyist a while back, and he actually promoted ufology, thinking that aliens were coming to liberate humanity and bring it to a state of global communism, because, apparently, in order to get the technology to fly to Earth in the first place, aliens would have to be living under some kind of communistic society. So aliens apparently are some kind of liberation force, according to Posadas. And sadly, given that there are no aliens in Area 51, it doesn't look like that revolution is coming very soon. Do the aliens bleed red? We don't even know. Oh. They would if they had chemoglobin. See, if they were our communist liberators, I think they'd bleed red. We need to figure this out. I, I got that joke. I think that obviously Posadas' theories are quite far out. I mean, I'm not claiming to necessarily propose them or adhere to them. He also promoted nuclear war destroying the entire planet so we could rebuild in a communistic fashion. So he's obviously a little bit crazy. But I, 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 I think that the communism question, let's just leave that to one side for a minute. We can have that question that conversation another day. <laughs> I, I've never heard of, heard of this man before. He sounds amazing. Who? Juan Posadas? Yeah. He's just like, yo, let's, let's just blow up the whole planet and then start back. He was a very weird man, and he's got an international named after him, because the fourth international, I, I don't know how much you know about sort of communist organizations and that kind of thing, but obviously there was the first international, which was the Karl Marx one, the International Working Men's Association or whatever it is, and then they kicked the anarchists out, creating the second international. The third international was Lenin's big thing, and then Stalin took over it. And then the fourth international was created in reaction to the third international, which was a Trotskyist organization. Posadas was a Trotskyist who effectively took his own faction out of the Fourth International and made a separate Fourth International. And he lived in South America. He didn't really ever do much aside from, say, outlandish things and give outlandish theories. But, you know, a pretty cool life. It's interesting to me that although, you know, millions of people seemingly signed up for the Area 51 raid, only about 150 or so, according to different statistics, only made it to the gate. And that's kind of disappointing because I was expecting a much more turnout. Frankly, if the government didn't kill them, the logistics and the heat would kill them. I think that's why they all showed up at night, honestly. They beat the sun. If you are going towards a government base, especially in America, where there's everyone is heavily armed, surrounding lots of military bases, the chances are, if you try to approach and storm that base, you are probably going to get shot. There's not going to be any good coming out of that. There's no chance that you would escape and find an alien and take it home. And I think that the general population, as stupid as they might be, probably realize that. So I think it's not really that surprising that they weren't very successful in conducting a raid. I think you're about right on that. Imagine that we did break through 
Area 51, we get our own alien and we bring it back and we share everything with this alien. At that point, does that mean that the, I don't know, I was, I was going to go on a whole communist rabbit trail about that, but. Well, I'm into, you know, indoctrinating aliens. I'm, I could get behind that. I'm a communist myself, as many of you will know. And a good few aliens in my, amongst our crew, that could be pretty cool, I think. It would be some good PR, but you know, who knows? Well, I mean, if we could assimilate them, are they really aliens at that point? Well, that's another question. They just become one of us. Uh, potentially. At that point, would we dive into alien segregation? Well, I mean, there is certainly the question of if there were aliens, what exactly do we do with them? And obviously, our reaction when we think of aliens landing on planet Earth would be that they would be hostile because we live in a, in a system that obviously is quite hostile already in a way um, because there's a lot of species competition going on, whether that be on the individual level or the national level or the class level or whatever it is. So, you know, ultimately, I don't personally know whether or not an alien society would be built as much around warfare and hostility as, you know, an Earth civilization would have done. And hence, maybe we're going about this, we're thinking about aliens coming to Earth in a whole, in, in a way that we shouldn't really be thinking. But who knows? Well, then, that was an interesting topic. Michael, do you have any other topics to present? I do have another topic to present about how one Japanese marketing company makes every new hire climb Mount Fuji in Japan. So each July, a fresh group of employees starts a 12,000-foot trek and hikes through the night to reach the summit around sunrise. And um, they have around 6,000 employees, so most of them, or I should say all of them, have done such thing. Well, I mean, it's good for collective spirit, I guess. Are the groups segregated in that, you know, the bosses and the employees are together, or are they separ uh, separated, segregated, etc., or what happens? It's not said, but from what I'm reading, it doesn't seem so. Oh, okay. Well, I can imagine that that's quite a good thing for promoting a healthy dialogue between employees and employers, because obviously that's necessary in the sense of collective bargaining. You, you might disagree on that point. Also, you've got to wonder whether or not it's trying to cover up the hostility or the inevitable tensions of an employer-employee relationship. Altogether, I think it probably helps productivity. So, you know, it, so it sounds quite an interesting phenomenon. Well, the thing that I find really interesting about it is, you know, say that the bosses are going there with the new hires and everything, and they're all going up as a group. Your first really impression of having this job is this amazing memory of climbing this mountain with this group of people that you just met now are probably pretty good friends with because you just climbed a mountain with them. And especially if it's your first time climbing a mountain or climbing Mount Fuji, I just imagine that it would be a really special memory. And so it would just create kind of a, a reverse cognitive dissonance towards the company. Well, yeah, and also going the other way as well. It would help the employer, perhaps, to see his employees or his new hires as human beings as opposed to commodities, which obviously can be a problem in the sense of worker exploitation, uh, in which humans are treated more as figures or, you know, means of production than actually as people. And obviously that's not so great. So I can imagine it actually does a whole lot of good for the mentality of the employers as well as the employees as well. Yeah, I imagine it creates extreme bonding experience because, you know, you hike through the middle of the night with them and you come back to the office with such a shared memory because obviously hiking a mountain isn't the easiest thing in the world. So you've been through something together and you probably know how to help each other.
you know, we could go into something a little bit more dark. The Independent reports that a special tribunal finds evidence that China is killing religious and ethnic minorities and harvesting their organs. What does the article say happened out of curiosity? It mentions detainees of the government who belong to minority groups were killed in order to keep their kidneys, livers, hearts, and lungs to be removed and turned into commodities for sale, which is in itself a very harsh thing. Very dark, yeah. I mean, the thing is with China is that it is very authoritarian, and that's not a good thing. I, I don't, I'm not an authoritarian myself, so I, I very much disagree with authoritarian practice. However, I think it is important to note that in cases such as the Uyghur Muslims and the Falun Gong, there's a political element to it as well as a religious element. I'm not saying that justifies anything that happens, but for example, the Falun Gong are a very socially conservative sect. Some have called them a cult. I personally don't know enough about the Falun Gong to say whether that's true or not. However, the Falun Gong also have some relatively problematic views on race. In fact, they believe that aliens are trying to mix the races of humanity up so as to weaken us, which is obviously quite a controversial belief. So it's no surprise that the, the Chinese government, which is obviously extremely ideologically inclined and quite authoritarian, might have a problem with the Falun Gong. As for the Uyghur Muslims, that in itself is a, is a debatable point because a lot of Uyghur Muslims have been put into what has been called re-education camps, and this has been widely broadcasted on Western media. But the reason China have done this, and again, I'm not necessarily supporting that, but the reason that they've done it is in order to curb terrorism or potential terrorism within the region, because unfortunately there is a risk of radicalization of some of those people who live there. Unfortunately, there's a lot of influence in bad hands. So in, so in that sense, you can understand sort of why they're doing it, even if you don't agree with the manner in which they're conducting themselves, which is obviously blatantly authoritarian and not very nice, for lack of a, a better phrase. There is obviously a deeper question behind why they are doing this kind of thing that goes sort of deeper than just simply for harvesting organs, simply for gaining resources. Although that might be, for some members of these activities, that might be a, an additional motivation for some sort of corrupt people within the Chinese government or the Communist Party. But yeah. I'm actually fairly well researched in this area. One thing that the Chinese Communist Party is doing is that they're trying to sinicize the population. They're trying to get rid of all the ethnic minorities and replace them with the Han Chinese, the dominant East Asian ethnic group in China. One of their methods by doing this is actually sending the ethnic Uyghurs to concentration camps where they, they actually hold the Uyghurs against their will. They sterilize and torture them. Then they maybe let them go. But even then, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is stationed all in Xinjiang. And every little bit of people's lives are monitored. The Chinese government sent an ad out on TV saying to any ethnic Han Chinese to get a Uyghur wife and essentially breed the Uyghurs out of existence. They're even sending Han Chinese to live in Uyghur houses in Xinjiang. It's just terrible. Can I ask what your sources are on the, uh, on the motivations of the Chinese government in, you know, racially, quote-unquote, purification? Or do you know it off the top of your head? 
Well, that's actually been a practice throughout Chinese history. They've done it in the Yellow River Valley, tried it in Canton, you know, southern China, and in, it used to be called Manchuria, but now it's not anymore. But yes, th this practice has been going on for a long time. Washington Post actually speaks about it. There's an article discussing the ethnic cleansing in China, and it, it does mention Xinjiang. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, but as Tannen mentioned. I mean, obviously, China have made it their mission to clamp down hard on Xinjiang, and that's obvious. It's not the best way of going about things. The Chinese argument might be that due to the pressures of China being essentially an isolated nation, they need to have a sort of an authoritarian outlook in order to maintain their sovereignty and their ideological path. But obviously, if it's that blatantly authoritarian, obviously it's, it, it's, we should condemn that. We should not try to justify the means which are being used. Though I think that, yeah, generally, I, I'm not entirely sure whether or not the goal of the Chinese government is specifically ethnic cleansing. I think that that, that might be one interpretation, but I, 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 would, I would be very surprised if that's official Communist Party policy, given, you know, obviously the Chinese Communist Party's campaigns to aid all the ethnicities across the entire world in their eyes. Not exactly to take over the world, but to build economies of smaller nations through the Belt and Road Initiative, which which does, which does not include predatory loans because, you know, that is one of the key aspects of the Belt and Road Initiative is that it foregoes that kind of thing. And it has not, in fact, resulted in any seizure of assets yet throughout the entire initiative. So unlike Western initiatives of similar nature. But I would be personally very surprised if uh, China are trying to promote a explicitly Han supremacist state. But I, I, I guess I'll have to look into that. I would have to disagree with you on the Belt and Road Initiative. Of course. <laughs> I was just going to say, obviously, probably all of us are for organ donation, but I assume all of us are against murdering the donor. Oh, totally. Totally. Which is seemingly what's taking place in these quote-unquote concentration camps, per se. Keep in mind that in the West, it can take you months, if not years, to get an organ for the transplant. But in China, it can take you up to maybe two or three days. And if it doesn't match your type, then they'll just go and get another one. It's absurdly quick. What I'm hearing, basically, if I ever need organs, I should go to China. Well, keep in mind where they get these organs. Sometimes they kidnap Fong Gong practitioners in the middle of the night in their houses, and they bring them to the military hospital and harvest their organs. This is happening all over China. That's so crazy. I think there's a, a plot like that in one of the towns in Fallout. I'm one of these games. I'm pretty sure, unless I'm thinking of something completely different, which is possible. There's a town where there's like all of these quests about just people like losing organs and stuff in, in the village, right? And no one knows what's happening. And I don't remember like what the playthrough was. I don't think I ever finished the quest, but it's like, this is literally something out of a video game that's happening in real life, which is absurd. And I think that number one, it's awful, but also let's be real. Like, it's a genocide, definitely, of, of these people based off of the information that I'm hearing right now. But at least the genocide is going, in, in, instead of just being a pure genocide, it's almost like, like a chaotic, like neutral 
evil genocide. Like, it's genocide is never good. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's ever okay for genocide, but I'm saying that like from from like an ethical standpoint, I feel like like they're using the killing for something, which is all that war is is using killing to barter something. So they're using killing to barter the lives of other people, and they don't. They've already dehumanized these other people that they're getting these organs from in their head. So in their mind, they're probably doing something very good. Genocide is quite a strong term, so I think if we are to officially deem it to be genocide, which we'll see whether it is genocide, but I think that if we were to do that, then we have to have a very thorough international debate about that and an international inquiry about that before we label something genocidal or before we question the motives or, or truly know the motives. What we do know, however, is that on the subject of the Uyghur Muslim, most countries in the Arab world who are predominantly Muslim have not condemned China for their actions in relation to the Uyghurs, which, you know, obviously might seem a bit surprising given there's Muslim solidarity coming into play. So we do have to consider that when talking about, for example, the Uyghur crisis, because we have to question whether or not this is a political portrayal or a religious portrayal or whatever the problem is. It's difficult to know exactly. And I think that we would need a complete international inquiry about this kind of thing before we jump to the conclusion that it's a genocide or whatever. But obviously it is quite troubling. I'm not disputing that. Well, Abraham, there has been an international tribunal actually coming to the conclusion that organ harvesting is happening in China, and it is on the level of a genocide. Okay, how many countries were part of that? And which ones? Because, I mean, that would be interesting to see, and whether or not that's been adopted by the international community in a sufficient extent. I, I don't know. When, when I say international inquiry, I mean sort of a bipartisan in a way. Bipartisan, I mean one party being the West, one party being the East or the Global South, whatever the opposition is. Funny enough, it's been the West that's been standing up for the Muslims in China. And I question the Muslim solidarity because when you see natural disasters, let's say in Indonesia, it's almost never the Muslim countries that give aid. It's always been, you know, the US or other Western countries. Well, Indonesia, I think, has very strong connections specifically with Australia. Obviously, that's been utilized for good in that the Australia have managed to get help for Indonesia disasters. However, it's also been utilized for bad, such as in Australia providing or enabling Indonesia's military occupation of West Papua and also previously of East Timor until East Timor became independent. But also there are a lot of countries in the Arab world that have the resources that they could obviously give. But I don't know if that's necessarily representative of the entire brotherly spirit between various nations under Islam. So Abraham, what is your topic? Okay, so I've chosen to speak about what I speak about like all the time, which is corporate power, and specifically in regard to the destruction of the climate, which is obviously a very topical issue right now. So if, uh, in case you weren't aware, you probably were aware, the Amazon is on fire. It's not looking so good. The president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, who is very right-wing leader, for lack of a more suitable term, 
And under his presidency, deforestation has increased. And as a result of that, the forest fires have increased by 90% or around 90% in Brazilian territory. Now, these fires have also spread to other countries such as Bolivia and Paraguay. But in Bolivia, under the under the leftist government of Evo Morales, who is an in, who is a member of the indigenous community, once once he started to fight the fire in Bolivian territory, he managed to decrease the amount of fire hotspots in, in Bolivia by 85%. So he managed to do quite a good job in combating the fire. And one of the things he did was in the particularly effective areas was he actually banned the sale of private property so that corporations and corporate bodies that might go on to purchase that land and use it for deforestation or accidentally set off a fire or whatever it is don't have the ability to do that. It's an interesting approach and it seems to be working, whereas Bolsonaro's approach, which is very much, you know, corporate backed, does not really seem to be working in quite the same way. And especially oil companies, energy companies, etc. And also those who now engage in the business of fast food all have some level of culpability in the climate crisis to some degree. I think it's the top 20 corporations in the world produce a massive amount of the world's carbon emissions, like far more than the rest of the world combined, I think. Although I'm, I'm not sure of the exact figure. But in, in relation to the Amazon, there's a lot of relation between the fast food companies and the mining companies as well, and deforestation. There's a substantial link between those industries. In that sense, stopping those companies from being able to take that land and use it for their own ends has actually done a good, good bit of support for the indigenous communities who live in the Amazon and also for the ecosystem itself. Bearing in mind that the Amazon produces 20% of the air we breathe, the lungs of the world, supposedly. So it's very important to us in lowering greenhouse gas CO2 levels and also the biodiversity. But it is an incredible asset to humanity. And if we lost the Amazon rainforest, which I'm not suggesting we will completely lose the Amazon rainforest because obviously it's massive. But if we were to lose it, the biodiversity of the Amazon would take 10 million years, I think, to recreate if completely destroyed. Ultimately, the Amazon rainforest is an extremely important asset for humanity in our battle against climate change or climate crisis. It's not something we can easily recreate or bring back if we lose it. So it's incredibly important that we step in to try and save the Amazon. And I think that if we hold the companies who are largely responsible to account, that could, you know, be a substantial aid. If climate change is happening, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but if it is, and all the ice melts in the Arctic, won't there be more greenery and trees growing up there? Maybe Greenland will actually become green, therefore adding to the oxygen output? I can understand why it might create a bit more greenery, but ultimately the biodiversity levels are not going to be nearly as high as in pre-established rainforests or pre-established woodland areas or wherever it is. So ultimately, maybe you might get some trees sprouting up, but by that point, if Greenland has thawed, it's probably too late. Let's also remember that underneath the permafrost in the Arctic is a lot of methane gas. If the, if, if the Arctic melts, or if all the snow melts in the Arctic and Antarctic, a lot of methane is going to escape into the atmosphere. And methane, sorry, not, yeah, methane is the, probably the worst greenhouse gas. 
Sorry to like backtrack really fast. Uh, you said it was about 20%. I, according to the Atlantic, the Amazon produces 6%. Like from that, like it's it's really like there's a lot of different estimations from a lot of different people, but it definitely pr produces a significant amount, not near the amount that the ocean produces, but definitely a significant amount of oxygen. I, I think more importantly than the oxygen is just all the different types of life that live there and flourish and will die if we don't save it. Yeah, but I think that it's also a considerable asset to us as humans in our own struggle for survival. I think that I, I think that it probably depends on the source in which you use and that the study at which you use determining how much it can truly have an effect on, on us. I think the, the statistics that I got, well, I, I think they're related to the world globally. I don't know whether that's so maybe the United States figure or maybe the United Kingdom figure or whatever might be different. I don't know exactly, but I'm pretty sure that globally it's 20%. Though, if I am wrong on that, then you can fact check me all you want. <laughs> I would like to say in reference to the more original topic about land selling being suspended, I think in special cases that could be helpful as long as after everything's said and done, it returns to a more free market manner. And if it helps the environment, I, I would prefer that it, we do it as long as it didn't drastically affect the economy. Well, I mean, funny you should mention the economy. Evo Morales is a, he's a left-wing left politician, or he's at least left-leaning politician. Whether or not he's left-wing is another question. But he is effectively a chavista, so he wants the gradual transition towards a uh, social democratic and then eventually socialist society. And under his leadership, the economy has tripled. So his government has been very positive for the economy. Also, the amount of people who've come out of poverty is quite astounding. Bolivia had massive amounts of poverty before Morales took power, and now it's at an all-time low. So, ultimately, I think if we're talking about the economy, if we're talking about this, the quality of life of, you know, people in that country, a sort of a pro-socialist outlook has actually benefited them a lot. So, I, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think that's an important point to note. Recently, a ProPublica investigation, which is an independent journalism site, have received news from a whistleblower that as the CEOs of Google and Amazon, so one of which is Jeff Bezos, who is, who is of course the most, the wealthiest man in the world, are getting unprecedented access to the Pentagon as a result of uh, military technology that for some reason they're trying to, to get in on, which is a new level of uh, partnership between big tech and the US government, which is quite worrying. And given that Jeff Bezos is obviously, he, he's a billionaire uh, of all billionaires, really, he's probably going to be the first trillionaire if a trillionaire ever happens. And yet so many who work for his company are uh, beneath the poverty line, uh, have no right to unionization or collective bargaining or anything like that. He's obviously a controversial figure. And if he has a higher degree of control over the US war machine, which, you know, is the worry here, then that could potentially have some very destructive consequences, because obviously he is willing to do almost anything to make money. 
Well, I would disagree with you on that last point, but I do too fear big tech interfering or getting alongside big government. I think those two things are a dangerous combination. Yeah, I think that's big tech. And I think when you say big government, I, I, I think it depends what that government is. You know, if that big tech is being regulated by big government, then, well, that's a different issue entirely. If big government is very sort of oligarchical, bureaucratic, likelihood is it's probably linked linked very strongly with big tech, which is which of course is privately owned. That's one thing to note. Well, let's take the example of the Chinese Communist Party and Google. Both of those institutions are cooperating with each other to help monitor and create a more efficient PLA, the Chinese military. And it's really getting out of control. Yes, and that's not something I agree with. I don't agree with the Chinese government or any government or the US government interacting that, that heavily with big tech at any point. So, you know, I, I will condemn that right now if you want me to. You know? uh, the last thing I will say that is that I think that the only way that big tech could be redeemed is by being controlled and being ultimately operated by some kind of democratic body, whether that be publicly owned, whether that be owned by its workers, whether that be owned by a democratically elected government, whatever it is. That is where I feel big tech could be redeemed. But obviously, whilst it's in private hands, that's never going to happen. I mean, that kind of gets into a slippery slope of regulation. I mean, how much government regulation will take place before the corporation is either totally government owned or it goes out of business? So it's kind of a, it's one of those things we definitely have to be careful about it and we have to choose wisely because it will affect our future in greater ways than we might expect. Well, I'm a big believer in uh, state property, or at least democratic control of the means of production and distribution, which can occur through a state, but preferably not. I'm not really much of a statist myself, but, you know, I think that that's, that's an important issue. Whether or not that's done by a state or not is, is, is a different question. So my topic is reports say from Business Insider that we are about six months away from undetectable deepfakes. Now, a deepfake is essentially a computer algorithm that can replicate facial movements and voice patterns and is able to come up with its own video of you moving and speaking. And there are videos on this on YouTube, so you can look that up, but it is nearly six months away from being totally undetectable. And this will, I think, play a major factor actor in public relations and and also in let's say the 2020 election that is going to be a a huge i hate to use this word but fake news outlet i suppose yep it's not good it doesn't look good at all it looks like a very bad thing that can happen and sadly there's not really much we can do about it i guess one of the only ways to you know stop it would be by regulation but you know obviously you don't seem to like that very much so i don't i, I how would you want to tackle the problem well for, for this specific action i think I think this probably should be banned. I think it should be banned, but as we know, technology is rather hard to regulate. You know, you can see that we've, we've banned piracy. Obviously, that's legal. It still happens very frequently. People find ways around it. There's other forms of illegal digital media. It still happens, takes place. Yes, where people are found out and arrested, but it does happen regardless. And I think with technology, there might not be a way at this point to totally negate that. But um, yeah, I, I'm not too sure how you would solve something like that. 
Well, I, I don't know whether making it necessarily illegal is the way to go, because obviously then it will develop in an, in an underground state. But I do think that the government should have some element of control, or, or, or not necessarily the government, but some kind of democratically elected body should have some kind of control over the industry, so, so as to prevent, you know, precisely the kind of things we're seeing, which is that they make something that could be potentially very harmful and disturb the fabric of our society, which, you know, is unfortunately looking more and more plausible. Indeed. Speaking of big tech companies working with government, Google and NASA recently announced on NASA's website that they developed a quantum computer. Now, this article was quickly taken down on concerns of it being uploaded premature. But if this is true and Google and NASA developed a quantum computer, this is such a groundbreaking achievement that this could radically change our everyday lives and even our fundamental problems. Let's first give an example of what a quantum computer is. A regular computer can take about three trillion years to solve this one certain problem. However, a world's fastest supercomputer can get it done in about three days. This quantum computer can actually get it done in 30 seconds. It is so hyper advanced that it could possibly solve, it could give us an answer for climate change, it could give us an answer for pretty much any large scale problem that we're facing. And this could totally disrupt blockchain and cryptocurrency because blockchain goes through multiple nodes and you have to encrypt those and go through each one but it could just totally wipe out cryptocurrency and another thing is that if this type of technology is in hands that aren't really morally suited for them that they could develop artificial general intelligence with this and those two things combined could be a fundamental threat to humanity. And AI, artificial general intelligence, being connected to the internet could develop artificial super intelligence. That is such a concern that Silicon Valley has actually started a church to it, thinking that it will be essentially God. Wow. Well, I, I've got to say that it, I do find it quite troubling that Google are so heavily embedded within this creation, because obviously you talked about it being in the right hands or the wrong hands and how important that is, and obviously it is. I would not say that Google are necessarily the right hands to be organized, uh, to be, you know, operating something that could potentially be a, uh, a very valuable asset to humanity in times of crisis, whether or not it can do anything towards climate change or otherwise. Frankly, I'm not sure if it should be in anyone's hands. This technology is so advanced and so complicated. I mean, Google doesn't even know how the YouTube algorithm works. They send it through AI and they have the AI build it. This technology is so beyond us that I'm not sure if, if it's good for it to even exist, even though it could be potentially such a life-changing technology. Well, they didn't get the YouTube algorithm right until now. Now they have the supercomputer. They'll, they'll, they'll get it right in the next few days, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you.